Good morning. I would like any of you that are in education as a career to raise your hands. Okay. Anybody in healthcare? Any auto mechanics? Uh oh. <laughs> Thank you, Glenn. <laughs> Any plumbers? Thank you, Glenn. <laughs> I knew you were telling you. <laughs> Carpenters? Thank you, Glenn. <laughs> and electricians? <laughs> Glenn. So if you need help, Glenn's the one to go to. <clears throat> knew I could count on Glenn. <laughs> People who have these skills are awesome resources to have around when you need to learn some new skill, when your blood pressure is too high or your drain won't go down. Now I'd like you to raise your hand if you've ever been a child. Thank you. You ever been a parent? Have you ever been discouraged? ever felt confused about what to do. You can start raising the other arm if you get tired. (laughs) What about if you've ever sinned? Each and every one of us has experience, extensive experience, in struggling, succeeding, and failing and resisting sin. In fact, a group this size could easily have a compiled 3,500 years of experience with that, of combined experience. So how do we tap into that resource? How do I find the person who could help me with my kind of struggle? How do we get the need in contact with the resource. Well, I could address that question better if you could just go around the room and every one of you tell you tell me what your resource is and I'll see if I can help you, but I really don't think that's going to happen. I really don't think that'll work too well. And the reason for that I'm sorry, my glasses are for reading. This is for looking at you. <laughs> this looks fine, but I look up and you get fuzzy, so the reason that would not work is because most of us here this morning are wearing our usual masks. The mask that we show everyone. You know, the one that's got printed across the front of it. I'm fine. I've got everything under control. Now, some don't seem to see it, and they ask us how we're doing anyway. And we have to actually tell them, fine, Now, we know that not everyone that asks us how we're doing wants a rundown of how our last week's been. But I know, and you know too, there are people who come through the church building doors and sit down next to their brothers and sisters. And they are not fine. They are stressed out, discouraged, drained feeling hopeless, wondering why God is not helping them. 
wishing they had someone they could really talk to, someone they could just pull the mask off with and really show what's going on. To be able to tell somebody about their struggle, like the Apostle Paul did in Romans 7, when he says, I find in the law that when I would do good, evil is present with me. For I delight in the law of God after the inward man, but I see another law in my members, warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then with the mind I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh the law of sin. Because of Christ's forgiveness, Paul could take his mask off. And we can all relate to what he's saying. We're going to talk this morning briefly, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> briefly about what is required for us to take off our masks and help each other serve the Lord. First, we have to figure out what a resource is. <coughs> We are like a pipe. On the left, is Christ. Pouring into us His strength, His wisdom, His love, His mercy, etc. And on the right, is the need. If you're a resource, that's what you are. You are a pipe. You are a pipe. A pipe by which God disperses out to others around you. If I don't remember that I am just the pipe from the source to the need, then I start thinking all that is my own ideas, wisdom, strength. And then I close my heart to the true resource. And I cease to be a resource for anybody else. I must remember, I can't help anyone because I'm just a pipe. They need the material that flows through the pipe. I'm just a pipe. In James 1, starting in verse 17, it says, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, and cometh down from the Father of lights, with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. Of his own will begat he us with the word of truth, that, he, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. In John 5, starting in verse 30, Jesus says, I can of my own self do nothing. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not mine own will, but the will of the Father which has sent me. Jesus himself said, of myself I can do nothing. Because I seek not mine own will, but the will of the Father which has sent me. 
God is the source. We are just the re and resource. Those two places is the only place you're going to find yourself. If you move up here, you're in trouble. You've lost your focus. You've lost your purpose. And what is the body that we're trying to compile these resources with? Colossians 1.18 tells us Christ is the head of the church. He is the body, which is the body of Christ. So the question before us this morning is, how do we use the body of the church as a resource? Well, first you have to ask yourself the question, why would we? There are some people that say, I don't need the church. I don't need you to serve God. But that's not what the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12. When he's describing the body, starting in verse 12, we'll do 12 and 13 and 20 through 26. For as the body is one and hath many members, and all the members of that one body, being many, are one body, so also is Christ. For by one Spirit... Are we bad, all baptized into one body, whether we be Jews or Gentiles, whether we be bond or free, and have, and have been all made to drink into one spirit? But now are they many members, but one body. And the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. Nay, much more those members of the body which seem to be more feeble are necessary. And those members of the body which we think to be less honorable, upon them we bestow more abundant honor. And our uncomely parts have more abundant comeliness, for our comely parts have no need. But God, but God hath tempered the body together, having given more abundant honor to that part which lacked, for that there should be no schism in the body, but that the members should have the same care one for another. And whether one member suffer, all the members suffer with it, or one member be honored, all members rejoice with it. That's a little harder with some things. If I could find an auto mechanic in here, I could ask him to work on my car. That would be relatively easy. But some of that's harder than others. For example, in James, James says that we need to confess your faults one to another and pray one for another that you may be healed. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. James 5.16 Confess your faults one to another. Do you notice it didn't say... You didn't command him to confess your faults to everyone. That would be probably inappropriate. We are not to confess our faults to everyone because some can't be trusted with them. The verse says to one another. It might be one person, it might be a small group, but it's not likely going to be the whole congregation. And how do we get that to happen? How do we get that to happen? Paul tells us, Bear ye one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. Galatians 2, 6 and 2. So we need to help one another bear our burdens. But he also says, Every man shall bear his own burden. Galatians 6 and 5. Did you hear the difference? We need to help one another with burdens, but we cannot, cannot take someone else's burden from them and carry it ourselves. We are to bear our own burdens and help others bear theirs. 
So how do we get to that to happen? We're going to look at what characteristics are necessary for the resource to connect with the need. There's nothing wrong with the source. The question is how to get the resource connected with the need. The first thing that has to happen is that the need has to be correctly identified. If there's going to be any connection between a resource and a need, there are those things that must happen. One, the person with the need must know they have the need. That sounds silly, but it's not. The church at Laodicea didn't know they had a need. Roman, or Revelations chapter 3, starting in verse 15, the angel said to them, I know thy works, that thou art neither hot nor cold, cold nor hot. I would thou art cold or hot. So then, because thou art lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. Because thou sayest, I am rich and increased with goods, and have need of nothing, and knowest not that thou art wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. In Matthew chapter 9, starting in verse 10, it says, And it came to pass that Jesus sat at meat in the house. Behold, many publicans and sinners came and sat down with him and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw it, they said unto the disciples, Why eateth your master with publicans and sinners? But when Jesus heard that, he said unto them, They that be whole need not a physician, but they that be sick. So was Jesus trying to tell the Pharisees that they weren't sick? Or was he saying that the publicans and sinners were the only ones who would admit that they were sick when the, when the Pharisees refused to believe it? Jesus could not be a resource to them, to the Pharisees, because the Pharisees didn't see the need. Oftentimes we don't see the need. Secondly, the resource must perceive the correct need. The resource must not assume that you know what the answer is. You must not assume that you know what the solution might be. You've got to listen to determine the need. We don't have to go any further than Job to see this. Most of you, if all in all of you, know that story. Job was afflicted by the devil sorely. <coughs> sorely. And Job knew that he had a need. It was obvious to Job he had a need. He needed help bearing his burden. And he needed support. And Job's three friends show up and they identified his need correctly. Right? He needed help bearing his burden. And for seven days they did that. Quietly. Bearing the burden. But then they had something happen that oftentimes happens to us they started having a need that got ahead of Job's. They started trying to identify a different need. Why? Well, if you sat seven days grieving with this person in pain and you don't know what else to do, and we have a tendency when we don't know what else to do to find something else to do, and we get it messed up. Maybe it was the idea that somebody could be suffering like Job through no fault of their own that bothered them. Maybe that bothered them and they couldn't stand the idea that maybe this could be me. If it's no different for Job, then it could be me. Maybe it frightened them. Sometimes our needs get tangled up with other per- the other person's and it clouds how we try to help as it did with them. They became poor help. 
They were great the first seven days before they opened their mouth. But then they started doing something different. Sometimes a need shows up at the most inopportune times and requires our attention when you feel least able to respond. It's 3 a.m. and I gotta get up to work in three. Go to work in three hours. Can't this wait? I love the story that Jesus tells in Luke chapter 11, starting verse 5. It's similar to that. He said unto them, Which of you shall have a friend and shall go in unto him at midnight and say unto him, Friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine in his journey has come to me, and I have nothing to set before him. And he from within shall answer and say, Trouble me not, the door is now shut, and my children are with me in bed. I cannot rise and give thee. I say unto you, though he will not rise and give him, because he is his friend, yet because of his importunity he will rise and give him as many as he needeth. And I say unto you, Ask, and it shall be given you. Seek, and ye shall find. Knock, and it shall be opened unto you. For every one that asketh receiveth, and he that seeketh findeth. And to him that knocketh it shall be opened. What was the need of the friend? Couldn't this wait till tomorrow? He had unexpected guests. What's that mean? Is he concerned about breakfast for them? Is that what he's worried about? Because my family's in bed and and we were asleep. More than likely everybody else is in bed as well. So why are you asking me for breakfast? It's not time for breakfast. But that's not what it was. Isn't it that the friend arrived late from his journey and is hungry now and needs something to eat? It sounds like he arrived late. Probably didn't have anything to eat. So therefore, the need wasn't tomorrow morning. The need was now. Tomorrow morning would have been too late. Sometimes the needs show up at most inopportune times. Inopportune times for who? For my needs, unfortunately. So eventually, both the resource and the person must both perceive the need correctly before they can proceed. Number two. You probably can't see this all over, so you won't criticize my... Handwriting. Number two, the resource and the recipient must be humble and motivated by love. The person in need and the resource, the tool, must be humble. In order for someone to admit that they need help and allow themselves to use the resource, they must be willing to humble themselves and accept that the resource wants to help them because the resource is motivated by love for them. Now there's where we run into the famous clog. The clog of pride. Pride clogs our pipe and keeps us from resourcing God to one another. In Luke 18, starting in verse 10, Jesus tells this story. Two men went up to the temple to pray, the one a Pharisee and the other a publican. And the Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank thee that I am not as other men are, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this publican. I fast twice in the week. I give tithes of all that I possess. And the publican, standing afar off, 
would not lift up so much as his eyes into heaven, but smote upon his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you this. This man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone that exalteth himself shall be abased, and he that humbleth himself shall be exalted. Which person would you go to if you needed help with a problem, with a struggle, with a temptation? Would you go to the Pharisee or would you go to the publican? The Pharisee went away unjustified because his eagle couldn't admit that he, <clears throat> that he needed justified. <clears throat> Sometimes our pride gets in the way of providing help to someone else or getting the help that we need. In order for a resource to be available and useful to someone in need, he or she must first be humble, acknowledging that they also struggle. And we only need to look to Jesus for this quality. In Philippians chapter 2, starting in verse 5, Paul says, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, thought not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. And why did he? Because he loved us. Admit your need and be humble, and that will encourage others to admit theirs. We must be aware that we are also tempted, and we must encourage one another with love. Galatians 6 and 1, 1 and 2 says, Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual, restore such a one in the spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. Bear ye one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. We all come from the same place. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. No one has grounds for arrogance. If we can't imagine ourselves capable of doing something that someone else might have done, then we're not humble enough to help. If you can't imagine yourself doing something that anybody might tell you they're having trouble with, then you're not humble enough to help. If you can't imagine something bad happening to someone without it being their fault, then you run the risk of being arrogant and prideful with the person in need. We may become like Job's friends. A resource also needs to understand where the person is at, not where you want them to be. Remember Romans 5 or 6 when it said, we were, When we were yet without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. Before you can show someone God's love and be a resource for them, you have to love people. Even when they're not doing what God wants them to do. That's what God showed us even when they're not doing what God wanted them to do. And we know lots of examples of this. Stephen is being stoned to death, and he's praying to God that these people not be held responsible for the sin. That is the kind of love that we have freely received. So freely give. 
It must be done with love and humility from both sides. And it must be perceived from both sides. third one is, is the connection safe? And in my opinion, this is the number one, probably, number one key ingredient for whether a resource will be useful. Is it safe to admit that you are struggling with something to somebody? Do others feel safe enough with you to let themselves be vulnerable and open up about things that they're having difficulty with? Does the church need to do better at using its resources for one another? Probably. Do we need to communicate more with each other about our battles, our struggles, our failures, and lean on each other more? Probably. Do we need to do better at laughing with those that laugh and mourn with those who mourn? Yes. But it seems to me that those things will happen if we make ourselves safe resources for each other. People often really want to have somebody to help them. Sometimes they have a strange way of showing it. It's called defensiveness. But they really want somebody to help them. Somebody to depend on when things get tough. But they will not risk the exposure if they do not feel it's safe. If they do not feel it's safe for them, they will not risk the exposure. So how do we make it safe? First of all, we're not condemning. If you look back again at Jesus as an example, Jesus made it safe. John 3, starting verse 16, says what? For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God sent not His Son into the world to condemn the world but that the world through him might be saved. Safe. He that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already, because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. In John 12, starting verse 46, Jesus says, I am come a light into the world, and whosoever believeth on me should not abide in darkness. If any man hear my words and believe believe not, I judge him not, for I came not to judge the world, but to save the world. Jesus was not here to judge and condemn. He was here to save, to make safe. If Jesus was not here to judge and condemn, then we're not here to judge and condemn either. So do I mean by that that we're to just accept everybody's actions, whether they're sinful or not? No. No, that wasn't Jesus. That wasn't Jesus. Jesus made himself safe for others to admit sin. He made himself safe for others to admit their sin because he was not interested in condemning them. He was interested in saving them. John 8 and 11, Jesus tells the woman caught in adultery, Neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. She knew that she had done wrong. And Jesus was clear about that sin. 
But his purpose was not to condemn her to hell, but to save her, to offer her safety. He responds, neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. So is the church interested in saving and extending mercy? Or is the church more interested in condemning and punishing? Are we most like those who accused the woman caught in adultery and wanted her stoned? Or are we most like Jesus? You know, if you look through the Bible, the only people that Jesus was ever harsh with were people that were pride, full of pride and rebellious. They didn't know they needed it. Even the apostles were sometimes on the wrong side of this. In Luke chapter 9, verse 51, it says, And it came to pass when the time was come that he should be received up, he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem, and sent messengers before his face, and they went and entered into a village of the Samaritans to make ready for him. And they did not receive him, because his face was as though he would go to Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, wilt thou that we command fire to come down from heaven and consume them, even as Elias did? But he turned and rebuked them. And he said, you know not what manner of spirit you are. For the Son of Man has not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. Which represents how you deal with people who are sinning. Many times I've heard Christians comment about how this world is going down horrible paths. And I'm not denying that that's probably true. And they just wish that Christ would come back and end all this mess. And I can understand that. I'll be done with the struggle. But do you realize what you're saying? Second Peter 3 and 9 tells us, He will not, that He is not willing that any should perish, but that all come to repentance. If we don't offer a message of salvation, but we seek their condemnation, how can we be harvesters? If we're more interested in condemning, then would Christ rebuke us and say, you don't know what manner of spirit you are? Jesus made it safe by identifying with us, being tempted in all manners as we are, yet without sin. He is a high priest who can be touched with the feelings of our infirmities. He knows what you're talking about. Personally, knows what you're talking about. It's safe to tell him. We can help make it safe by keeping it confidential. That may sound obvious, but I wish it worked that way. In Proverbs 11 and 13, it says, A talebearer revealeth secrets, but he that is of a faithful spirit concealeth the matter. If someone shares a personal struggle with you, they are honoring you with a valuable piece of themselves. Don't make them don't make them sorry they did by telling anyone else. 
If we cannot, no, if we do not control our tongue and we gossip and reveal others' secrets, we are not safe for anyone to come to for help. You must not break their confidence. And like Paul, it would help them be safe if you were willing to willing to admit that you struggle too. I don't know what time I'm supposed to stop. Van Day doesn't have a good clock, so. <clears throat> Number four, the resource offers hope. The resource offers hope. If my marriage is in trouble, can you offer me hope? It has been my observation that one of the best predictors for whether a marriage in trouble will survive is if they have hope. If they don't, they haven't got much chance unless you can unless they can get some. Romans eight, starting in verse twenty four, says, We are for we are saved by hope. But hope that is seen is not hope, for what man what a man seeth, why doth he yet hope for? But if we hope for that we see not, then do we with patience wait for it. If my wife's having trouble with me and she has hope she can be patient. If she doesn't have hope, there isn't much patience. Romans 15, verse 13 says, Now the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that ye may abound in hope through the power of the Holy Ghost. So since God is the God of hope and we're His children saved by hope and we're doing the will, doing the will of our Father, then we should be beacons of God's hope for others. God is a God of second chances. Second chances to the power of ten. If someone were to come to you with their life in a mess and broken with sin, do we offer them hope by telling them how God hasn't seen a mess He can't clean up? God can do it if they're willing to submit to Him. Or do we react with shock? Wow! What a mess. And you unload on them about what a disappointment it is to you that they're in this mess. Do we tell them we have no idea how to help you? I I don't know. Or do we find some place to get them the help they need? Do we help them bear it? If you react with shock, and I don't know what I'm going to do, and I don't know what to tell you, and I can't believe you did that, then you're not sounding much like a resource of God's hope. God's pouring in hope. He's pouring hope in, so where's it going to? If God can clean you and I up, then there's hope for anybody. This was Simon's problem in Luke chapter 7, starting verse 36. One of the Pharisees desired him that he would eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and sat down to meet. And behold, a woman in the city, which was a sinner, when she knew, which was a sinner, 
as opposed to anybody else at the table, right? And behold, a woman in the city, which was a sinner, when she knew that Jesus sat at meat in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster box of ointment. And she stood at his feet, behind him weeping, and began to wash his feet with tears, and did wipe them with the hairs of her head, and kissed his feet, and anointed them with ointment. A woman who was a sinner felt safe enough with Christ to do that. Now when the Pharisee, which had bidden him, saw it, he spake within himself, saying, This man, if he were a prophet, would have known who and what manner of woman this is that toucheth him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said unto him, Simon, I have somewhat to say unto thee. And he saith, Master, say on. There was a certain creditor which had two debtors. debtors. The one owed five hundred pence and the other fifty. And when they had nothing to pay, he frankly forgave them both. Tell me, therefore, which of them would love him most? Simon answered and said, I suppose that he to whom he forgave most. And he said unto him, Thou hast rightly judged. And he turned to the woman and said to Simon, Seest thou this woman? I entered into thine house, thou gavest me no water for my feet. But she had washed my feet with tears, and wiped them with the hairs of her head. Thou gavest me no kiss, but the woman, since the time I came in, hath not ceased to kiss my feet. My head with oil thou didst not anoint, but this woman hath anointed my feet with ointment. Wherefore I say unto you, unto thee, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loveth much. But to whom little is forgiven, the same loveth little. The irony is that Simon thought he had little sin. He had little to be forgiven of. Simon never saw the woman. That's why Jesus said, Seest? Look. Look. Seest thou this woman? The reason Simon didn't see her is because he couldn't really see himself. We must remember that this hope is not ours. I have no hope I can give you. You have no hope that you can give me of your own. Don't get caught up in the idea that we're their hope. We are not their hope. We were without hope. The only the only source of hope is our Heavenly Father. And He's got an abundance of it. He is the God of hope. If we can show them the hope God gave us, and God extends to them, then they might let us show them how God can help them. But even if we do show them hope in God, the person in need has to believe that. They will not move to accept the help until they become convinced that there is hope of a solution. Even if they don't know what it is yet. And sometimes it's just good enough for a while that you have a hope that there's a solution because they don't have any yet. So they're going to borrow yours for a while until they get theirs. That's all right. It's not yours anyway. Romans 5, starting in verse 1, says, Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom also we have access by faith into the grace wherein we stand 
and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And not only so, but we glory in tribulations also, knowing that tribulation worketh patience, and patience experience, and experience hope, and hope maketh not ashamed. Why? Because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost, which is given unto us. For when we were yet without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet for a venture for a good man some would even dare to die. But God commendeth his love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more then, being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath through him. Hope. Hope must be offered and hope must be perceived. Or the resource and the need will never make connection. Last one. Believe it or not. Last one. And Grant eluded this for me, so that helps. Last one is the resource must act and the need must act to receive. James 2, starting verse 14, says, What doth it profit, my brethren, though a man say he hath faith and have not works? Can faith save him? If a brother or sister be naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you say unto them, Depart in peace, be warmed and filled, notwithstanding, you give them not those, <clears throat> those things which are needful to the body, what doth it profit? Even so faith, if it hath not works, is dead, being alone. Yea, a man may say, Thou hast faith, and I have works. Show me thy faith without thy works, and I will show thee my faith by my works. 1 John 3, starting verse 16. Grant alluded to this too. Hereby perceive we the love of God, because he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. There's the pipe. Did you see it? Hereby perceive we the love of God because He laid down His life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoso hath this world's good, and seeth his brother having need, have need, and shutteth up his bowels of compassion from him, how dwelleth the love of God in him? My little children, let us not love in word, <coughs> neither in tongue, but in deed and in truth. I had somebody one time who was struggling with anger at God because God didn't provide them the things they needed as a child. And they had a rough childhood. If you think about this, God gave those parents what they needed to love that child. Those parents refused to pass it. It wasn't God's fault. But those parents refused to pass it. I would hate to be those parents when God asked about that. The resource, if you are in need, and we all are somewhere, the resource may not come from where you would expect it. The Bible is full of situations where the resource didn't come from where they expected it. For example, Naaman was a leper that was healed because a slave girl kidnapped during a raid on Israel cared about him enough to say, there's a prophet in Israel that could heal you that. Who would have thought 
that he would discover a cure from a slave girl who incidentally had never seen anybody healed from leprosy. But she had hope. Elijah prophesied there was going to be a famine in the land. And then he got out of town because Ahab was after him. So where does God send him? Well, if you're hungry, you probably got to go for some food. Mm-mm. He sent him to a brook <clears throat> to have the birds give him food. But then the brook dries up. And of all the people that God could have sent Elijah to for food, he picks a widow woman who had no food left in the house. There was plenty of women in Israel. Plenty of houses with food in it. God picked this widow and her son who had no food to feed themselves, much less Elijah. But she obeyed. She had hope. And the food never ran out. So the resource can come from some unexpected places. So the correct need must be identified. Both must be humble and motivated by love. It must be safe. There must be hope. And both must act. If that doesn't happen, we have no resources. All of us are here this morning to varying degrees because this is what God has done for us. That's what He did for you. When we were yet without strength, Christ died for the ungodly. God commendeth His love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He called us to Him. Matthew 11, and verse 28, He says, Come unto Me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take My yoke. Take My yoke upon you and learn of Me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and you shall find rest unto your souls. For My yoke is easy, and My burden is light. God has done all He can do on His side of the equation. Now it's left up to us. He stands at the door of your soul and knocks. He yearns to exchange His yoke. That's easy. His burden that's light for yours. Yours is heavy. Heavy with guilt. Heavy with shame. Heavy with fear. But he stands at the door and knocks. He will not bust in. But all I have to do is open the door. It's safe. It's safe. So if you have not accepted Christ, repented of your sins, and confessed that He is Christ, and been buried in baptism for the remission of your sins, He stands at your door of your soul and knocks. 
He's got a much lighter burden to give you. And He's already taken yours if you let Him have it. If you've fallen away, there's still hope. It's still safe. Jesus is always, always safe to repent to. He will forgive you. Because He loves you. That's what He wants to do. The invitation is yours as we stand and sing.